Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Everything is about looking outwards and how the other person is feeling. When you start to do that, it's amazing how much support you get back. And it's a positive wave that you're creating. And if we're all doing it, you could change society extremely quickly. If you've been lucky enough to travel to Uluru and see the breathtaking light installation at the base of the monolith, you'll be excited to meet my guest today. The Field of Light, as that art installation is known, was a project that initially was only going to showcase for a few short months. Now, I know this because I happened to work on that initial scoping project many moons ago. The installation became so popular that it's been extended time and time again. It truly is a breathtaking sight. The Field of Light is the brainchild and magical work of British artist Bruce Munro, who is very well known for producing large, immersive light-based installations in many locations around the world. These dynamic exhibitions are made up of thousands of components and incredible logistical feats in their own right, let alone being so beautiful and bringing so much joy to all of those that see them. Bruce is a bit of an artistic diarist who has spent over 30 years collecting and recording ideas and images in his sketchbooks, which he returns to over time as source material. Language, literature, science and music have also greatly influenced his work. Bruce completed a BA in Fine Arts at Bristol in 1982. Shortly after, he moved to Sydney where he worked in design and lighting, inspired by Australia's natural light and landscape. Returning to England in 1992, he settled in Wiltshire, but his love for Australia was never lost, and it was incredibly fitting when he finally got to realise his dream to light up the Central Australian desert in such a magical way. Whilst he's a global superstar in this world and his work has been featured at museums and botanical gardens internationally, it was Bruce's down-to-earth manner and sheer love of creativity in the process that I remembered fondly the first time I met him all those years ago. I'm so happy to be sitting down with him once again. Bruce Munro, it is so lovely to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Good morning, Michelle. Lovely to be with you again. Fabulous to see your lovely face. We've had lots of chats about things over time, but I'm really interested today to hear if there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? The spontaneous answer would have to be how we value work. Interesting topic. Well, for those that don't know you, you're obviously an artist and a light installation expert. I don't know what your actual official title is, but you're um, a maker of light, (laughs) if I call you that. Why is this a topic that's so passionate to you, Bruce? I think because it's touched me throughout my life in that... I've come to learn by doing what I do of the skills of so many people, particularly artisans and artists, who really struggle to make a living. And I look out there and see lots of other people struggling 
to make a living. And these people are really contributing to our society in amazing ways. And I've always felt there's an imbalance in how we value what each of us do. So some people are extremely well remunerated and others not so. And the focus seems to always be on the financial reward as opposed to what people are actually doing and providing for others. That does concern me. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you having been a corporate turned creative, I guess. I've really seen that in that space. If I think about when people say, oh, what's your hourly rate you charge? And I'm thinking, is that the board rate I charge or my pottery rate? (laughs) Because they're very different. And yet to your point, I'm still spending an hour of my time. I'm still the same person. I'm still using the intellect and ability that I have. It's just used in a different way. So why do you think that that is the case? And especially in the the arts, I guess, where it's not deemed as valuable, I guess, in that sense, or those makers don't get to really make as much money. It's not just makers or artisans. It's across society where people who are dedicated and it's more of a vocation, they are often taken advantage of. And I used to be very easy about it when I was a single person and, you know, when I was living with my fiancé in the Sydney days, because obviously you've only got two to care for or one to care for, you know, you're much more self-sufficient. But when you start to have a family and you realise that money is quite a serious thing and without it, life can be pretty grim. So I sort of toughened up a little bit. I always found it incredibly difficult to value what you do. But then I started, I think it's when I moved back to the UK. At the end of the year, if you're self-employed, just like you are in Aussie, you have to do your financial books for the year. And obviously, I'm not clever enough to do that. So I'd employ a local accountant, of which there were many. And this really nice chap was charging three or four times an hourly rate just to do some numbers, really. I'm not trying to belittle what he did, but I just thought... Where does this come from? How come this fellow can charge this much? And the people who were making things and creating things that had been working at their whole life, all those skills, some of them have been passed down from other generations, were still just literally head above water. Yeah, and is it that simplistic that it's either you're using your hands versus using your brain? And you know, using your hands in, you know, like whether it's medieval days and all that, that wasn't as good for society versus someone who was very intellectual and the academics, et cetera, and the contribution they were making to society. So is that why you think that happened in terms of the hierarchy and why they were deemed to be more important, therefore paid more? That's very much something to do. And that obviously has evolved over the last 200 years to be as we are. But interestingly, with the development of the internet, That's been a really good thing for artists because the consumer can actually find the artisan directly or the artist. I know that a lot of fine art artists still might work directly through a gallerist, which is also important because not every artist wants to be out selling his wares or her wares. But the fact that the consumer can actually find us does mean that you can cut out some of the unnecessary middle marketing layer. Which adds the cost, yeah, as well, yeah. 
I was probably more thinking about we've just come through a terrible crisis, obviously, for, with the COVID crisis. And really what drew my attention to it, we had this pandemic that nobody knew really what we were dealing with. And yet we all expected our frontline services, our doctors, our nurses, and everybody associated with hospitals. And actually that's far and wide to, to really, sorry, that's your job and get on with it. Now, those people are very underpaid for what they do. And they're doing such important work and they're undervalued, not only in what they pay, but also in the way that we think about them. Obviously, during the pandemic, we all thought everybody realised how wonderful they all were. But now that pandemic has passed, you know, you start to carry on with our lives. But it's a classic problem we have in the UK, and I think it's worldwide, that we just don't value jobs that people are doing that actually are very giving and supportive of the rest of us. And I'm sorry to say it, I'm not being banker bashing here, but, you know, there are people in the city who are making absolutely crazy amounts of money. Look, I am conservative with the small C in the sense I do believe in entrepreneurial spirit and getting on with things. And not everybody can be awarded the same amount of money, but it's just gone way, way too far. And I think you'd put teachers into that as well, wouldn't you? You know, into that field, teachers and those that work for not-for-profits and that give their life to particular causes and things, you know, and they hardly can make ends meet themselves and yet they're giving their life and their purpose and stuff to others. When are we going to get some half-decent politicians to stop this bickering that seems to happen between the polar opposites? They're never polar opposite. And I just wish that these centre-ground politicians would stop trying to score political points on popular subjects and really get down to the difficult ones, which is a fairer society. And also, those who have so much, stop trying to hide it all and not pay taxes. Pay your taxes. We need to pay our taxes because the exchequer needs the money to run the blooming country. Again, it's greed and self-interest, and I get so fed up with it. You know, your point is about how we value work. So what's the answer in your mind? I learned long ago, trying to change the world on a large scale is nigh impossible and very depressing because you'll get into other problems. But if you just look at your own life and how you conduct yourself, I have a little business, there's 16 of us. My most important resource are my employees, or what I don't like saying my employees, my co-workers. I spend more time with these people than I do with my own family. And I think that you sort of have to change your view on where your focus is, and it's got to be on people close to you. And by trying to behave in a reasonable, responsible way, which is fair, and I'm not trying to make myself look like Mr. Goody's Two-Shoes, but really you've just got to be fair to people, you get a fair deal back. Everything is about looking outwards and how the other person is feeling. When you start to do that, it's amazing how much support you get back. And it's a positive wave that you're creating. And if we're all doing it, you could change society extremely quickly. I'll give you one example of this. It's it's slightly off subject, but when I was a young kid, my father lived in Devon. And I remember walking down the street and in Devon, in this particular fishing town village, they used to say, Instead of good morning, they go, all right. It was 
quite strange because I grew up in the South, but there was this lovely exchange of warmth in their eyes. And where I was living in the Southeast of England, occasionally people would say good morning, but mostly, particularly if you're in a city, people don't look at you, they walk through you. And again, it's a societal thing. It's being aware that you're not the only person on the street and there is another human being in front of you, smile at them and say good morning. The difference of your day, not just by the receiver of that greeting, but when you start to give a greeting like that, weirdly, you feel better. Your day is better. Try it. I would say to anybody that listens to this, just try looking at somebody. I mean, sometimes people look at you like you're bonkers and they think you're about to mug them because it's such an unusual thing. But you get a lot of laughs. It's true. We were travelling through Italy early this year and we got, you know, deep down the south of Italy and, yeah, it was genuinely, they were so nice in the streets, but, yeah, walking through and they go, buonasera, buongiorno, and they'd all talk to you and you're like, oh, how lovely, because we clearly stood out as tourists <laughs> and they still spoke to us. It was really nice, but it does make you feel better and it costs nothing, you know, it doesn't hurt you and if they do ignore you, it doesn't matter. What does it matter if, you know, at least as you say, you greeted someone in your days better. But I want to dig into the point about valuing work. So you said about, you know, us being better humans. I think that's kind of the key message you seem to be giving across and that kindness element and just being a good person. But when you think about valuing our work, there's one side of actually external validation and valuation. So whether that is, you know, doctors, lawyers, bankers in that realm that you get educated and you get paid a lot of money and everyone thinks that that's aspirational where to go. But what's your advice in this stage and the success of your career and how you've had such a different career trajectory to get to where you are now? Like if someone's listening and they think, well, yeah, I'm paid a lot of money, I've got a job that I am a banker, but I actually really genuinely at heart I'm an artist, but I know it's never going to pay enough. Or like what's your advice for someone to take that plunge and do something differently? Because I know you pivoted with your career and stuff as well, which would have been a big leap of faith. Everybody's journey is going to be different. But what I say to my kids, most importantly, is if you follow your heart and your passion, you will make a living without a doubt because you're so invested in it. It might not be the most, but it, you should be able to, if we're a half-decent society, live a reasonable life. And, you know, you might be able to find other things or make more revenue that you had never thought about that can also then be redirected into the good things that you want to follow or pursue. It really is just making sure that you try and do something that you really want to do. Now, not everybody gets that privilege. Many kids, if they haven't had the opportunity to learn and also be encouraged to learn, because if a parent hasn't seen what education can do, why should they know about their children following that route? Because Education is really the way out of a bad situation because you become more mobile. You've got to keep it very simple and just try and do things that you feel instinctively are right. Yes, it sounds a little bit naive, or it is probably naive, but I don't really know. I mean, the only other thing is that we change our politics and we value things in a different way so that doctors and nurses and teachers and all those services that every one of us knows are important are given more value and we should be paying these people more and by paying them more it attracts more people to do them 
then you'll get the very best people in the world teaching and being doctors. I remember first going to Aussie in the 80s. From my memory, the HS, is it HSC students, when they finished their school, doctors were the best paid people in the country. Was it Eggleston, I remember, that chap who had those kind of fluffy surgeries, you know, with white fur and stuff. I mean, it was pretty off. Outmarket uh, medical centres, wasn't it? Yeah. And I remember meeting a young guy from Sydney Uni who really, all he'd ever wanted to be was a doctor. And sadly, he didn't get the right points. He couldn't follow his dream. So there's got to be something wrong that you're applying a number or a dollar value to a job in that when a kid actually really wants to be a doctor, I'd like to go to see a doctor who really cared, not somebody who just wants to earn lots of money. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, isn't it? And you kind of wonder then about the skill base. Is it that the kid who desperately wanted to do it and be it, but he didn't get the top marks? And I think about a parallel with athletics and sports and stuff where, you know, you often get someone who has that sheer talent as an athlete and they'll go for a certain point, but it's those that maybe aren't as naturally talented but have far more tenacity, you know, and that grit. They are the ones that become the world athletes. And it doesn't really apply to the business world as such, to your point around that. I just think the whole school education system needs blowing up. I think we're still teaching kids the way we taught them, you know, like 100 years ago, and things have changed. It's not the same anymore you know, the curriculum and the rote sort of sense of how they need to learn stuff that's not really at all applicable later in life just seems crazy. So we should be teaching them about money, how to understand actually in terms of, you know, your finances, especially there's a, a lot of younger women that don't actually fully understand how to look after themselves and manage their finances and when they go into relationships and marriages and they let their partner manage all that. But we're teaching kids still bloody trigonometry or bullshit math stuff that you're never going to use in your life. (laughs) I totally agree, yes. Funny enough, there was a a lovely friend of mine who lives in Western Australia who had two daughters. Well, he wrote a book for them, basically a simple finance book, which actually I asked him, could I have a copy for my children? I don't know whether they've read it. I read it and went, God, I wish my father had given me something like this. And you're quite right. There is some basics that we all need to learn. I remember coming to Sydney and I had not a clue, particularly when I was starting my first little business. And I phoned my father in England and I said, Dad, I want to start this business and I've got this idea. What do I do? What do I need? I don't think my father really knew, but maybe he'd been told by his father. He said, well, you need an accountant and you need a lawyer. And I I said, Dad, I don't know what either of those people do. And I certainly don't have the money to employ them. (laughs) Yeah, but that's how you learn because then you go, oh, okay. So you learn about starting a little company and you buy a shelf company and you give it a name. And I don't think you can extract the creative side from all the other bits because you've got to be grown up about it. You can't just hope that you sit in your garret studio and hope somebody's going to find you because... That never happens. I mean, one in a million will be lucky. But you've got to be just like everybody else and find a way through. And if you can't do it yourself, you have to find somebody you get on with who will help you make those decisions that you're not so comfortable in making. It's important that you try and learn what the financial sides mean just so that you don't fall in a hole. 
Yeah. And I always figure no one's going to look after you. You've got to look after yourself to some extent. So I've always been a self-educator with pieces. But you've raised some really interesting points, Bruce. It's been so lovely to talk to you. And, you know, you and I have talked about lots of stuff around your art and installations and your work in that space. So this is such a gorgeous topic to talk about something completely different. So thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's been absolutely divine. Well, lovely to talk to you again. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in Australia. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.